Talk about the Funkalicious soundtrack on that one, huh? Man alive, like waiting for the Commodores to come out or something. Guys, today is Acts 3. It is about the aftermath of Pentecost. Guys here last week? You know, the cool thing about Pentecost is that it is not, it, it was never meant to be this. It is not just a day where you go, that was awesome. Now what's on TV? It was meant to be the beginning of something. It was meant to be the way that God kicked something into high gear that was to ripple out 2,000 years later, even up to today. And today is Acts 3. It is the next story or the next event in this, this Pentecost drama or this, this Pentecost narrative of what God is beginning and accomplishing and working in this world. If you'd like to follow along, there's chairs, uh, there's chairs under your Bible, maybe, but there's also Bibles under your chairs. All right. And, uh, I encourage you, uh, you know, sometime on your own soak in this story because there are some very significant things happening here that I think speak to ordinary people. Do you ever feel ordinary? That is good news. Because what Acts 3 is about is how God does extraordinary things through ordinary people. Now, if you're reading the story, if you listened, you might remember it starts with two disciples named Peter and John. And see, and this kind of messes us up right off the bat, because we hear disciple, we hear Peter and John, and suddenly we're talking super Christian, right? See, in our minds, I don't think the 12 disciples of Jesus seem ordinary. And that is entirely the point, because God took ordinary people and made them extraordinary. So by the time we get into the storyline with them, they've already grown in some kind of place, but I think we want to fast forward to conclusions that weren't the case throughout. Peter and John were ordinary people. People. How did God pick these guys? How did Jesus even pick them, right? Is he going to the best of the best of the best? Is it like doing a Google interview where they're search, you know, searching through thousands of applicants and only like the select few make it? He's walking down by the lake and he sees two guys fishing. Come on, let's go. Follow me. That's what God does. He comes to people wherever they're at the most ordinary, regular of human beings, and he dares them to trust him and see what he might have in store. In fact, you can read this Acts story, and the religious leaders, they say this. They saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary fishermen. And they were astonished. And they took note of something. What's different about these guys? Have you ever seen someone and something is just different about them? And you can't really put your finger on it. But something is, they they have something. Or there's something about them, it's just 
different. Jesus has a way of doing this. And Peter and John, ordinary fishermen, but something different because they dared to trust Jesus. Now, what this entire story of Acts is about is how God's spirit continues to flow through believers and through those who have followed him. And it comes to this story where they're back gathered in in, in the temple area, in Solomon's colonnade, it's called. Now, this is significant because if you were with us for Pentecost, the entire event that happened at Acts chapter 2 happened in the temple. More likely than not, in Solomon's colonnade. What are the disciples doing? They're going about life like normal. Because it's difficult, isn't it? Do you ever have these moments where God has just come down and he's grabbed you? And it's been powerful. And it's been impactful. And there is like this rush and this euphoria. And it's like you feel like you've been in the presence of the throne room itself. You know, you know the moments I'm talking about here? Have you ever tried to hold on to those? You know, it's like gripping sand, isn't it? No matter how hard you squeeze, it just sifts out. I see this all the time. People who, who, who go on retreats, people who go to like camps for the summer, people who go on mission trips, people who go to these, these big events and they walk out and they're, they are on fire. And, and, and they swear to themselves, it's going to be like this here on out. And then they start to equate that with what it must be like for the spirit to be present. But no matter how hard you squeeze onto those emotional moments, no one can live at an emotional high 24-7. And life has an interesting way of creeping back in. I remember the first time my wife Tina and I, we went on a mission trip. We, uh, we did it to Jamaica, which is like rock on there, you know? But what most people don't realize is that for all the, the, the tourist propaganda you see about Jamaica, that really only constitutes about 1% of the island. And that 1% of the island is on select white sand beaches that often have 12 to 15 foot high walls with barbed wire fence and armed guards surrounding your beach so you can live in a isolated paradise. The other 99% is slum. Poverty. Third world. And we were up there for this trip, and what we were doing is we were in the interior of an island at a deaf village. Because, see, if you're deaf in America, there are outlets for you. But if you're deaf in Jamaica, there's basically two. Beg or prostitution. And what this village would do, this, this compound, is they would take in deaf children often abandoned by their parents. They'd feed them. Give them a home. They teach them life skills, vocational skills, just emotional presence of others who cared for them. They'd offer them protection and help them get on their feet. And like most of these places, there are like work projects out the wazoo. So we were out there. And you experience some things. One, you experience people that have nothing. You would see eight people come out of a one-room like house, if you can even call it that, with a dirt floor exuding and exhibiting more joy than you see by many people who have 
everything. You would see things like this, and, and, and it would strike you, and, and, and you'd start to learn what it was like to do without. I remember the biggest thing, the biggest shock to get used to, besides like the nasty goat's milk, we'll put that one aside, no hot water. Ice cold showers. You turn it on and like, I tend to like that kind of thing, but I mean, we're talking like icicles forming in the middle of summer in Jamaica out of the shower head. And I remember this experience of getting acclimated to it, this way of life, this presence, and coming home and going, man, you know, forget the hot water, forget all the stuff we have. We're going to live basic. We're going to live simple. I remember kind of living the cold showers, trying, believe this or not, this is weird, keeping the high going. And do you know what slowly happens over the days? Well, it's the same thing you do in your shower, right? It turned up a little warmer, right? And the next day, it's a little warmer. Before you know it, you're steaming windows again, and life is back to normal. It can feel like that a lot with the Spirit. He comes, and there's a moment, and there's a high. But then life comes back to normal. And guys, hear this. I'm here to tell you today that's good news. Because the way of God is not making you into some super Christian. It is not making you into some X-Men. It's a God who works through the everyday, through ordinary people, accomplishing extraordinary things. I think of this story with the disciples, right? What it say in Acts 2.46? Every day they continue to meet in the temple courts, right? What are Peter and John doing? Going to the temple courts. It strikes me that when we think of things like mission, they weren't going out on some quest. They were going about their life. But keeping their eyes open to what God had in their midst. And I think that roots at what the Spirit does in this world. So often we look for the sign from heaven, don't we? But more often than not, it's God just saying, open your eyes. Go about your life. And trust my Spirit to bring my presence in the everyday right in your midst. And it says they come into this place called Solomon's Colonnade, and there's a man, and he was lame from birth. And every day, maybe his friends, maybe his relatives, maybe like Jamaica because he had no alternatives other than begging, carried him there hoping that maybe he could scrape enough food scraps or loose change to get him through another day. And I can imagine what the scene must have been like. Because what Acts says is, when, when he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. And look at what he does. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. And Peter said, look at us. Now, I think on the surface, this doesn't feel profound. But let me ask you, have you ever been driving somewhere on a weekend and the Knights of Columbus were out on the street corners asking, you know, for, for like your, your toll change? You, you know these moments or like the muscular dystrophy society? What is the number one absolute rule of thumb in those kinds of situations? 
You got it. No eye contact. No eye contact by any means necessary. Because you know, once there's connection, it's gone. I mean, you've not only lost your toll change, you've lost your eye pass, you've lost your... I mean, they're taking your catalytic converter. uh. Go downtown. How does it work with the homeless people who are on the street, the people who are begging? You walk fast, you walk straight, and you put the blinders on. And what must it have been like for this guy to experience things like that every single day? But finally, for one moment, someone took the time to treat him like a human being, to pay attention to him, to engage him, to not blow by, to not just pay him off and get on your way. Ordinary people in ordinary life taking hold of an opportunity that God had put in their midst. Guys, this is what spirit living is about. This is what God is up to. If you have ever sat there and felt ordinary, ordinary and regular and plain, what can God do with me? Where's God going to send me? How does this work? I'm not a missionary. I'm not someone. It's ordinary people engaged in ordinary things, simply opening themselves to an extraordinary thing that God might bring. Guys, that's the heart of it. Right there. This is going to come out the wrong way. But I want to introduce you to two very ordinary people here today. Their, name are, their names are Chris and Heather Shepard. I've had an opportunity to know Heather for five or six years now, and Chris for about three or four. When I met him, ordinary people like you and me. But for the last two years, they've been serving as missionaries in Istanbul, Turkey. And they happen to be here today, and, and, and I just invited them to come and, and just to share for a little while with you what they've learned about how God uses ordinary people. So would you welcome me, and Chris and Heather, would you come on up? This one's Chris. All right? Now, uh... (laughs) Chris and Heather and I had a chance to get together on on Friday, and I'm going to put a picture up here, too. Can you guys see these? Okay. Um, Two pictures that Chris and Heather sent me, and would you mind just for a moment maybe telling us about this and what we're looking at? Yeah, the the upper one is a picture of a Syrian family that we knew in Istanbul. They're actually now relocated in Texas, so we're really thankful for that, but their names are... Uh, Mepub and Aziza, and their little girl. And you can't tell in the picture, but Aziza, the woman, she's sitting. She's sitting on her bed on the floor, and she has no legs. Uh, 
they were they were caught in an explosion in Syria, and they both actually lost limbs. The husband also has a fake foot. I don't know if you can see, but it's like made out of wood. Um, and the little girl is fine. But this family came to Christ uh, before we came, and uh, it was just wonderful to get to know them because they were really open and just a really joyful family, even though there's so much physical suffering that they've been going through. Um, but yeah, we're really happy that they're now in America, so getting work and things like that. Now, tell us for a moment, if you would, before we get to the second picture. The work that you're doing in, um, in Turkey is predominantly involved with the refugee highway. Can you explain to us what that means and what that even looks like? What's going on? Yeah, so um, Istanbul, Turkey kind of functions like a bridge. If you were to look on the map, um, Turkey is, you know, right between uh, Asia and, uh, and uh, Europe. And so many of our refugees that we work with come from, uh, you know, various African countries, come from Afghanistan, come from Iran and, uh, and um, uh, Iraq and from Syria and uh, things like that. And so many of them uh, want to get into Europe or into America or into Canada. And so uh, most of the time they uh, work their way through the, you know, highway, uh, you know, which is, you know, what we call it, into Turkey and uh, in the hopes to get from Turkey to get into Europe or to those other, you know, northern countries. So that's what's called the, you know, refugee highway. It's a highway that is known by refugees and many, and many of them get smuggled by, by, by boats to get to where they want to go. Uh, many people um, travel over mountains in bare feet for many, 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 many hours. Uh, trying to dodge police and to uh, seek uh, safety. So uh, Istanbul is a very, very, very important place, and we're kind of meeting them right along their way um, to, you know, try to give them access to the gospel, which is something that was, uh, you know, forbidden in countries where they're coming from. Now, you mentioned earlier, especially with the top photo, that they were victims of a bomb explosion. What are the kinds of things that these refugees are facing that they're fleeing from to bother risking life and limb to make this trip to begin with? So uh, from the uh, second picture you see, that is an um, Iranian church in a central city in uh, Turkey uh, called um, Kayseri. And so uh, most of the people in that picture have fled uh, for uh, political reasons. So either they were, you know, a, a part of a, a, a different, you know, uh, you know, political party, and the government really didn't, you know, uh, like that, and they had to flee for their lives. Uh, or some were uh, Christians, and they, uh, you know, could no longer stay there because it was unsafe, and they had to flee for those reasons. Um, and so uh, we, uh, as a team, go out there, I think maybe once a month, to teach English and to have Bible studies and, and things of that nature. So uh, many of them have a lot of uh, trauma and a lot of heavy situations, uh, uh, heavy issues that they're coming from. And, um, yeah, that's, yeah. So political reasons, uh, some of them are leaving for economic reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the Iranians, they may be Baha'i, they may be homosexual, they may be um, communist. And then, you know, Syrians, there's just all the bombings and things like this, just terrible in Syria. So there's tons and tons of Syrians. And then almost as many Afghan people. Uh, are migrants just in the world. It's like over half of the people who are from Afghanistan are outside of Afghanistan just because mm-hmm. of danger and violence. Now, I know when you showed me these two pictures, the stories revolving around the top one struck me as what I typically thought of as refugees. But I got to say, I look at the bottom picture, and these are like good-looking people. <laughs> y- y- you know, I mean, they're, 
they're styling. Yeah. Um, and, it, and it turned on its head for me a little bit about the different reasons and the different conditions people are, are facing. But as they come into Turkey, what are some of the challenges that they're facing? I mean, what, what, what struggles and, and what issues have they set themselves up for? Yeah, well, I mean, the Iranians are different, and they're an intimidating bunch because you're like, oh, i got to dress up because these people are attractive. But, um, uh, I mean, the Iranians experience a lot of depression. You know, I mean, they're in a different country. They can't go back home. They miss Iran. Um, and they don't know if they're going to ever get to leave Turkey, and there's not a lot of opportunity. Like, work is illegal. They don't get to go to school. So their life is still on pause. Um, so the, I think... You know, depression and hopelessness is something all of the refugees face. Um, and just feelings of, like, invalidness, lack of worth. Um, you know, nobody wants refugees. It's just, it's just a terrible situation. Some get, some get quickly accepted, but a lot are just waiting for years and years and years, and their children are just chilling at home, and, you know, it's, de- it's depressing. So there's that. And then other refugees get stuck in kind of like slavery situations where um, they're sending their children to work. Their children can be as young as 13, and they're working for months and months in factories and not getting paid, and there's nothing they can do about it because they're powerless, and, you know, they need the money, and they can't complain because they're working illegally. So, And there's also a lot of, you know, family, se- uh, uh, family separation there too. So a lot of times you will see that, um, you know, many people, if they decide to go the smuggle route, uh, husbands and their boys will, you know, go separately from the, you know, women and children. And it's just a, like a, a uh, you know, they're like method of like, you know, getting smuggled out. It's a, you know, the, the bigger the crowd, uh, you know, the more chances, um, you know, of them getting caught. So many of, of these guys here have family still back in Iran. And they try to, you know, keep in touch with them and just, you know, see if they're safe. But uh, especially right now for these Syrians, uh, I was meeting with uh, one guy before I came here named uh, uh, Kawa. And last I met with him before uh, we left, he told me that in uh, Aleppo there was a bomb that went off. And his, uh, his uh, mother and his siblings uh, stayed right next to, to, to their neighbors who got killed by that bomb. And it was just right, right down the road. So uh, just that kind of, I don't know, just, um, you know, trauma, hopelessness, just that, you know, desperation that you feel for your family, wanting them to be safe as well. But the life of a refugee is, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's just very tough. It's a very tar, uh, hard, and uh, a lot of times you have to make tough decisions. And many of them have made that uh, so that they can try to find freedom. Now, help, help us out on something. I think it's easy for especially those of us who might not know Chris and Heather we meet you, we see you, we hear about this work you're doing in Istanbul. It's foreign, it's exotic, it's, it's, it's extraordinary. Mm-hmm. Heather, you grew up in Valparaiso your entire life. Okay, it's like Midwest farm country as you can get. Chris, you grew up in, uh, in the South Side. Mm-hmm. How did this happen? <laughs> <laughs> you, you know what I mean? Yeah, well, um, in college, I got to know a bunch of uh, Middle Eastern foreign exchange students, and um, I was just really naive and really excited about having relationships with foreigners, especially Muslims, 
And um, so I started to get into a really close relationship, especially with one student. And um, he gave me a Quran his senior year. He was leaving, so he gave me a Quran, and he told me all about Islam. And I had never shared with him because I thought, that'll offend him, and then I'm going to lose my cool world peace friendship. And so I never told him anything about Jesus, even though I knew that he, like, he just felt so burdened by Islam. And there were so many times where he thought God was punishing him because he did this wrong or that wrong. And, um, and I never shared with him. And when he left, um, that just really hit me. And I started to think a lot more about Muslims. And so that was what drew me to start thinking about working overseas. But, I mean, still, there are moments where I... <laughs> You know, there were moments even in support raising. I mean, I quit my job and I started fundraising and I'd be driving somewhere and I'd just like have a freak out. Like, oh my gosh, I quit my job. I don't have any insurance and I'm going to die. <laughs> you know, and my parents aren't terribly happy with it and it was scary, but um, God provided and it's still scary. There's still moments, you know, where it's, I mean, it's definitely, but God has always provided and there's nothing special about, I mean, it's because of, you guys and other people, I mean, yeah, no, I'm just rambling. <laughs> yeah, so uh, for me, um, you know, for those of you who have driven down, I don't know, in the south side of Chicago, uh, yeah, it's, you know, being a missionary is nothing that is very popular or even just common or, or, or known or even just thought about uh, in the city. So, you know, for me, um, you know, coming out of that context and, you know, going into college, you know, I began uh, to just see and appreciate and just value just different cultures. Uh, you know, that was the first time that I had friends who were of a different race than I was. And that was the first time that I engaged with people from the you know, Middle East and from, you know, Asia, from Africa, and, you know, things of that nature. And so I think just a, just a combination of just really, um, I guess, just, you know, appreciating cultural differences, uh, you know, from, from my own. And then also just, just growing and just learning that, just how Christ is just bigger than my context, bigger than my, you know, you know, than my own culture, bigger than my own, you know, denomination and, and things of that nature. And I think those two things really kind of uh, just grew and grew and grew um, as I got older. And God just, you know, took me on some, you know, crazy journeys to, you know, different places. And then also just journeys with my inner man and just growing in and just, you know, who Christ is and, and uh, his uh, heart for the world. So... I think of that Acts 3 story, and you read about how Peter and John come to this lame man, and they say, you know, silver and gold I do not have, but in the name of Jesus, get up and walk. And honestly, I've always wanted to be able to do that. You know what I mean? And I think it's a struggle sometimes. We see God work in these miraculous kind of ways, and it doesn't seem to manifest that self at way, at least often I would say, for, for most of us, how do you guys see God working through you in Turkey? Yeah, well, I mean, one thing for sure that I know I've learned, I think Chris has been learning too, is that um, it has nothing to do with us. It has nothing to do with, you know, my charisma or my abilities or gifts that, you know, if God isn't there, nothing is going to happen. And we're not going to be able to help these refugees and it'll be terrible. You know? So... Um, just learning to rely on God, but also, I mean, we've seen God working. God has been working so much in Istanbul. I mean, we have this church of Iranian refugees, and there are about 10 or 11 who get baptized almost every month. It's amazing. 
um, from that church. And then we also have God working amongst uh, orphans. There's an orphanage in Turkey where we've been um, working with guys, and they've been coming to Christ, and some of them want to go back to Iran to share the gospel, which is dangerous. You know, they could definitely get killed, and they want to do that. And so um, we've been working with them. Um, you know, God has been working in our team. He's been providing more, more workers for the field, but also been providing a space for us to share the gospel safely. We're able to have churches, like refugee churches, meet there. Um, and that's been a blessing because churches get kicked out of their buildings so fast in Turkey. I mean, it's really hard to have a worship place for more than a few months. So we've been really thankful for that space. Um, yeah. And we also, you know, receive a lot of help, too, because um, there's a lot of culture there that we don't know about. And so thankfully, you know, there are, um, you know, some translators that we've, uh, you know, that we've met who are Christians, who speak Arabic, who speak French, who speak Farsi, and just that cultural connection that we just can't, you know, that we just can't connect with, they really help us out a lot with that. And so many of them who are Christians now come from, you know, Muslim backgrounds themselves, and so they, they understand better than we do the, the, you know, mind of a Muslim, the, you know, just, just, you know, how they function, how they think, um, how they relate to each other better than we do. And so having that, uh, you know, a part of our ministry, though, you know, those translators, those who have come from Islam and who are not following Christ, working alongside with us, have been great and have been such a huge help. And so, you know, you know without them and uh, just, you know, the, the, the uh, grace of language that God has given them, uh, it'll be much more challenging for us to reach out to refugees. And if I'm not mistaken, you guys are learning Turkish, yeah. correct? How many different language people groups, shall we say, or language groups are you, are you facing in Istanbul on a regular basis? Yeah, so, um, you know, like I mentioned, so with refugees, um, the, the dominant uh, languages that we, that we, you know, work with are, are people who, are, uh, who are speak Arabic, speak Farsi, who speak French, who speak Kurdish, um, anything else? Yeah, okay, yeah. I'll do it, yeah, all right. <laughs> I, think, I think those are the main four. That's enough, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and so, uh, you know, a lot of them end up spending, uh, you know, long amounts of time in, in uh, Turkey. And so, you know, many of them end up, you know, speaking Turkish, uh, you know, especially their children. And so it's very important for us to be able to learn Turkish because, you know, without Turkish, there will be no way for us to, you know, connect with them apart from a translator. And so, uh, you know, we find that even though it's been a difficult journey for us learning Turkish, and we're now in a good place where we can, you know, be conversational, have conversations, you know, about Christ and about just, you know, different cultural stuff, uh, you know, like that, uh, we are very blessed to be able to, to speak Turkish uh, because we find that, you know, without it, it'd be very difficult. So, yeah. You're talking today to a room full of ordinary people. Sorry, guys. Um, if you had one word of advice to give to us today, what would it be? Well, um, honestly, for me, uh, before I became a, a Christian worker, uh, I worked in the dish room for three years uh, for my university um, in the dish room. And so during that time, I couldn't finish school due to financial reasons. And so, and now I'm a, you know, missionary in Istanbul. And for, you know, some of our programs, guess what I'm doing sometimes? I'm cleaning dishes. <laughs> and so I think that a lot of times we could really, you know, you know, romanticize about, you know, just different Christian positions and have those different, you know, hierarchies or uh, find ourselves trying to, you know, 
just justify ourselves by our positions, by our status, by our abilities, and, you know, things of that nature. And I think one thing that I'm reminded of is while I'm cleaning dishes in Istanbul is that, you know, um, I think to, to just rejoice and delight in, you know, whatever place God has you and to just, you know, delight in the ways that, that God has gifted you and strengthened you. Because while I was in the dish room, God still cared about those people there as much as he did for those that was in Istanbul. But I didn't realize that at that time until I went to Istanbul. And so uh, now, I, you know, I'm just thankful just for those times that I learned, uh, you know, that I was at, um, in the dish room and, and, you know, for those experiences. And so whether you're in Istanbul or you're in, you know, McHenry, Illinois, um, you know, delight, you know, where God has you and, and just take advantage of the opportunities that God gives you to be, to, to, to be witnesses, to be a light and to just, um, and just to share his gospel and just to share his, his, uh, his hope to uh, those around you. All right. Well, we'd love to pray for you guys. And uh, if you just join together, let's pray for Chris and Heather, the work that they're doing. God in heaven, we thank you so much for this couple who felt your prompt and heeded your call. Lord, protect them. Protect the people that they're ministering to. Protect the refugees who are risking everything as they come from places of of poverty and persecution. Lord, let your gospel rage. Let it open up and break through to the hearts of people who, who fear you, God, and your judgment. Help them to see the nature of who you are. Help them to see your son. Help them to see the forgiveness and the grace, and God, continue to use Heather and Chris as your your vessels, your spokespeople. Lord, use all of us, ordinary people. God, may we position ourselves and attune ourselves to the opportunities around and know that your spirit is at work. God, we pray. Amen. Hey, would you give him a hand? Thanks, guys. If you'd like to know more about their ministry, get to know them personally, a- amazing couple, swing by the Welcome Center after worship today. You can get on their e-news list and uh, find all kind of cool things out about Istanbul and what's going on over there. Acts 3, silver and gold I have none. So the disciples said, you might not have status. You might even be condemned. You might be thought as of a freak. You might feel completely ordinary. But for those who position themselves for what God is up to and attune themselves to their life situation and the opportunities that buzz, God will do the extraordinary through you. Spirit's out there and at work. Trust him. Thanks, guys.